Students Who Design is a podcast and video series that bridges students and the design industry. By students, for students. Be sure to check out our website, studentswho.design. This is Students Who Design. Today we'll be talking to Ethan Bond. He studied computer science and product design at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and he's currently a product designer at Palantir. In this episode, we'll cover the ethics of design, finding your first design projects, and so much more. We hope you enjoy this episode. Students Who Design is sponsored in part by Facebook Design. For more resources and information on designing at Facebook, visit facebook.design and check out open rules at facebook.com careers. Hey, Ethan. So first off, we'd like to introduce what school you graduated from, your major, and where you're working now. So I went to RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, in mm. Troy, New York, and I studied product design and computer science. Right now, I am a product designer at Palantir Technologies. Cool. And how did you get into product design? So I got into product design mostly because my mom was an artist growing up, and so I always had an interest in the creative stuff. Mm-hmm. But it took me until about high school to realize that I can't actually draw at all. And at, right around that same time, I actually read Predictably Irrational, which okay. you have listed on yeah, your website. it's like one of my favorite books. By Dan yeah. Ariely, um, which introduced me to behavioral economics and kind of the power that psychology and design can have in mm-hmm. decision making. And so that's what kind of brought me into, into design. And what made you want to major in both product design and computer science at RPI? And do you think that a technical degree like computer science added to or detracted from your progress? I attended RPI primarily for the product design program, which at the time in 2012, when I was looking at colleges, they were pretty rare. And so I applied to RPI for that, got in for that, Mm -hmm. and then kind of figured that I was at a school that had a world-class computer science program and might as well give it a shot. And I, uh, I ended up actually not graduating from RPI with either degree. <laughs> and I'm two classes short of a computer science degree. But you don't want to go back and just finish those classes? I think someday. I tell myself that I will someday. <laughs> but I think that adding a technical degree probably detracted from my path into product design in that it was just another thing to focus on. And so getting, you know, quote unquote, distracted by non-design things. But I also think that it's one of the most valuable parts of my education now that I'm working as a product designer. The technical side of things has been enormously helpful. So I want to quickly talk about the things that you were involved in at school or at RPI. So since 2013, you've been doing a bunch of hackathons, side projects, leading design at College Factual. How did you find these opportunities and what did you use to motivate yourself to pursue them? Yeah, so the opportunities kind of, for the most part, came to me, which as stereotypical of an answer as it is, like it's all about networking. And RPI, fortunately, the professors tend to come from industry rather than just from academia. And so if you, if you stand out in class, um, your name will kind of just come up in conversations outside of, outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so fostering that network with your professors or with um, just the industry or the hackathon circuit. I had a lot of friends in the computer science program who 
were very invested in the hackathon circuit. Yeah, back in like 2013, 14, 15, that was like the thing. Yeah. You go to all the hackathons you could every weekend. Yeah. So, and, that, and that's enormously helpful because that kind of... How, but how did you find your place as a designer at hackathons? I think that's like a huge thing. Like for, for anyone who can code, it's like, oh, 24 hours, let's just put this thing together. But design, it's like, what do you do in 24 hours? Yeah, I think that that's one of the more fundamental challenges of being a designer is justifying design. And that's actually what's really helpful about hackathons is you learn pretty early how to justify the role that design can have. And at hackathons in particular, it's actually pretty enormous because right, it's the difference between a product looking like a hackathon and feeling like a hackathon Hack, yeah. product um, that was actually hacked together in 24 hours versus just that extra layer of polish that just makes things look a lot more real. So you think working in parallel with the people who are hacking it together and then converging the last final hours is like the best way to make impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I hesitate to say like converging at the last yeah. final hour. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that the ideal case is like a really, really tight iteration cycle, um, primarily led by design. Um, but learning how to interact with engineers in that type of environment and with those types of stresses going on is a really valuable skill to have. Mm -hmm. And so where do you think that aspiring designers can look to or look for in a university setting to continue improving their craft? I think the main thing you're going to want to do is to find, basically construct your feedback loop. I'm of the mind that a design education can't actually teach you to be a better designer. Even though you went and you did a design degree. Yeah. Okay. I think that a design education mostly teaches you how to talk about design, which is important. It's valuable, but it doesn't actually, by definition, make you a better designer. What you do have the opportunity to do, though, there is to build the feedback loop and to find a trusted mentor or a trust, trusted set of mentors. And the way you get better at design is by simply doing design over and over and over again and mm -hmm. having the feedback loop that you trust in order to focus your work and reorient your work and actually make it stronger. Um, as far as what designers can do uh, outside of that, I mean, I think for me, most of the differentiation is going to come actually from the work you do outside of design. So whether it's learning how to code, which I don't think that designers should necessarily learn how to code. Okay. Um, Why is that? So I think I, I think the benefit of knowing how to code is not actually the act of writing code itself. Um, the way that I frame this is that design, a lot of people have this misunderstanding that design is about the mock-ups or it's about the prototypes and it's, or it's about like the, the actual like exhaust of the design process. But the actual design process is actually just a matter of, it's a complicated game of cost-benefit analysis, right? Whether um, it's the benefit to the user or the cost to the engineering team or the cost to the business. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more, as a designer, the more of these different facets of costs and benefits that you can understand and like truly articulate and, um, and pull into your process, uh, the better you are at doing cost-benefit analysis. And so if you're a designer who has never had to write you know, a crazy custom UI, then you don't have a strong understanding of the technical costs that you're incurring by making the decisions that you're making. But don't you think that if you built these systems and you inherently know before you even create them that this will be a cost? I think that 
you don't have a strong understanding of that cost without not necessarily having done it yourself, but without putting specific effort towards understanding that cost. Okay, it's, so it's more about understanding rather than actually like typing out. Exactly, yeah. okay. So long as you can understand the cost that you're incurring, um, then I think that that's the benefit of learning how to code. Maybe, mm -hmm. you, can, maybe you can get that same benefit without yeah. actually learning how to code. By just working with engineers. Working closely yeah. And, yeah, and learning how to speak about um, engineering with engineers. So you almost finished a design degree. I would say, I would say you finished the degree. Uh, Looking back, what were the advantages and disadvantages of majoring in product design? Um, and if you had to do it again, would you breed, would you major in a design? Yeah, I think I would. Degree? And that's especially true at RPI because it's such an engineering heavy school. Um, it's, it, it was really important to have like the creative outlet and just the creative community um, mm -hmm. of design. Um, so I, I would think I would do it again Again, though, like the it's I don't necessarily feel that it made me a better designer um, so much as it equipped me to speak about design, uh, which is valuable. But again, it's not, do you, I, I don't think do it's quite think, the same. Why do you think students should learn how to communicate the value of design, or why is that important, um, rather than just like knowing how to design? Yeah, I mean, the right now I think design is kind of riding a wave of mm -hmm. essentially that was you know, triggered by Apple and then uh, now you have you know, Slack and Facebook and all these companies that are very design centric. Um, and so right now I think a lot of the design community is kind of benefiting from this assumption of ROI yeah. and this assumption of value. Um, and in some contexts that, that's probably a warranted thing, but I also think in many contexts it's actually not quite a given and it's not quite a known thing. And so- no, not at all, yeah. As an example, at Palantir, which also a very engineering-heavy environment, does a lot of enterprise software, um, their designers do have to justify um, a lot of the decisions that they're making um, because it's not it's not quite the assumption, and I and I don't think it should be the assumption that good design is going to be worth it in the long term. Um, so you think practicing your intentionality very early on is a skill that is extremely valuable? Totally. I think what yeah. you're saying is like you can create and think about all these different solutions, but if you when you present them, you have to have a reason as to why you did certain things. Totally. If you're going to make it, and this and this becomes especially true, you know, um, if it's the if you're designing micro interactions, you're designing like a fairly minor thing, um, a fairly small thing, then relative to the system, relative to the system, then the 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 cost of the cost of building it isn't quite that large, but as you move up through the design ranks and as you're taking on larger and larger responsibilities and making decisions about product strategy, uh, for mm -hmm. example, um, those decisions basically increase exponentially in the potential cost to the business. And, so and you have to justify why you think your voice matters in those decisions. In a, but in a university setting, in the sense that you're not working with a product with metrics and revenue, et cetera, but, and you almost have this kind of like free-for-all imagination, and a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, I think that group me should have a polling system. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm gonna make a case study out of this. Um, and so let's say they do that. Mm -hmm. How can they, or that student, think about the business costs and the technical constraints that this might have when they're not surrounded by, you know, group me's engineers and PMs. Oh, totally. I mean, I think that's, it's, it's 
going to be impossible to like get course, a real yeah, grasp yeah. on what the real constraints so how can you around a problem are. Early on? Well, I think hackathons, for example, right. is one good way to do that um, because at the I mean you have the technical constraints and you have the time constraints. Um, and you have the presentation as well. And you have the presentation, and so you have to kind of orient around those goals and you're constrained by, by those things. Um, and that's kind of why I, I'm, I'm not personally a fan of these kind of like blue sky design projects where you can just go crazy yeah. and, and design all this crazy stuff. Because again, like design is not really about the mock-up that gets produced, right? It's about the, the process of cost-benefit analysis. And if there's no cost to anything you're doing besides your own time, then your analysis skills aren't really getting very good. So now I'd like to touch more on the uh, career-oriented part of the podcast um, and how students can really jumpstart their careers. So first off, how did you get your first opportunity or internship and what did you do to stand out during that first uh, phase of recruiting or just first position because that's usually the hardest? Yeah, so in high school I got actually really involved with the Android theming modification community okay. um, quite a while back. What is that? And so like uh, the Android UI back in, you know, the 2010 uh, era was pretty horrendous. Yeah. And so there's a bunch of like, you know, hackers basically like rooting phones or jailbreaking phones and then changing out the graphics and like making all these cool little things. So I got involved with that um, in high school and had a decent bit of success doing that because most of the people doing it were like highly technical and so the design sense wasn't like quite there yeah. yet. So I kind of like came out ahead of that um, and got lucky there. Ended up meeting somebody who pulled me into a design internship right after high school, between high school and college. Oh wow! And that was in Las Vegas and okay. at a really small hardware startup. Um, and so that was kind of maybe like my first professional opportunity, I guess. And from there. Uh, it was just a matter of like again like cultivating the network and having opportunities come to you and then also just being open to them. Um, the the way I got involved with Palantir is actually a little bit weird in that I went to the career fair, it's the very first career fair as a freshman. As a freshman at RPI and Palantir at the time had a reputation for being notoriously harsh at turning people down at career fairs and so I figured hey might as well just get <laughs> shut down right quick and then yeah. just get over it um, get over the fear get over the jitters and I talked so I went up to Palantir's table like first and foremost and lucked out in that nobody at the table was a designer the design team at the time I think was like five people oh, wow. and so none of them were there design doesn't recruit at RPI and so I kind of slid by because they didn't know what to ask me. So like they couldn't turn you down, but they yeah, so, didn't know what to do. So they just like passed on my resume. Um, I ended up interviewing for Palantir, so that flying out to Palo Alto that that year didn't get the didn't get an offer, but was asked to return to interview again the following year. Okay. And so I did my sophomore year. And what did you learn from that first time that they said no after the onsite? Or what did you what did you learn from that experience, and how did you improve the second time? Because it, it clearly worked out. Yeah, so a big part of it was um, this idea that they were kind of drilling into my head during the interviews of like going back to the user. And so I actually had kind of, again, like the, the perennial challenge of being a designer in these types of environments of like how do you justify the value of design. And at my internship that I had near school at the time, I was basically having that challenge of like justifying yeah. the work that I was trying to do. 
and a palantir that just drilled it in like go to the users go to the metrics and nobody can nobody can turn away from it mm -hmm. um, and so then when I uh, went back I went back to school I basically oriented more heavily around learning how to do that and doing user research and doing metrics um, and then went back to palantir with that knowledge and ended up getting getting an internship cool and so you've worked at both um, Palantir and Facebook, and now you're currently at Palantir. Uh, what are some things that both of those companies that are both extremely design-driven, uh, in your experience, prioritize when they're looking uh, or interviewing designers? Yeah, so I think that Facebook tends to orient or kind of index more heavily on specialties with designers, like people who are like especially good at micro-interactions. Um, or people who are especially good at visual design, or you know, kind of they, they have their their expertise, um, and I think that that's basically a consequence of them having a lot of designers and a huge design team, which is totally reasonable. Um, Palantir is kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, where we have a really small design team, and so as a result, and we're like very engineering heavy, and so as a result, um, we tend to prioritize a lot of generalists. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically, like this idea of T-shaped expertise, right? So you have like one thing that yeah. you're super good at, um, but you should have a wide range of um, at least interests, if nothing else. And so whether that's like business or technology or um, systems design or organizational design, mm -hmm. um, that T that T-shaped expertise is really important at Palantir. So you were an intern at Palantir for over five months, including the summer. Mm -hmm. um, and you've been at Palantir as a full-time designer for about over a year. What are some of the differences that you noticed um, in your work as an intern or the responsibilities that you had or the way you approach problems versus full-time, as a full-timer? And what do interns do that full-time designers don't? The main thing that interns do that full-timers don't is uh, worry about return offers. <laughs> I think that's the main thing. Um, yeah, Palantir, like the uh, kind of again, like as a as a consequence of a strategy of understaffing uh, pretty much everything. Um, interns are basically full-time designers yeah. uh, for all intents and purposes, and they have essentially a lot of the same roles and responsibilities at, at like the ground level. Um, I think the main difference is then how large of responsibilities can you take on? And that's just a factor of time more so than your role. Um, but so Palantir, like full time now, I've kind of grown to doing more product strategy type stuff and um, kind of like leading a development team and like leading a product team, um, which obviously as an intern, I was a little bit more like designing a specific piece exactly, of a yeah. UI. Um, and so the ability to take on the challenges that are interesting to me and like going in front of clients and demoing to C-suites mm -hmm. and stuff like that is something that interns can do, yeah. um, but it's just a matter of how much time it's going to take to get there. That's true, considering yeah. you only have 10 or 12 weeks. Right. Um, and so as a student designer, you're often focusing on like, oh, okay, I have my portfolio, but it's not visual design enough, and like you go focus on visual designer, vice versa with any other part of design. Um, what do you think that students usually forget when they're um, interviewing at companies or kind of you know, they're interviewing the company mm -hmm. um, and what they should look for. Yeah, so on the, on the portfolio perspective, I think one part of it is that designers should gear their portfolio towards the type of design that they want to be doing. So if you want to be doing a lot of visual design and doing 54 iterations of a button, 
and sure make yeah. that kind of like what your portfolio is geared towards. If you're interested in getting more to like the strategy side of things, um, then your portfolio is probably going to have a lot more text in it and a lot more, uh, you know, some more numbers and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so that's more what I was interested in. And so, I mean, if you go to my website today, there's like not an image on it. Yeah. Um, the the uh, other part of that of like designers interviewing the companies, um, I, th- I think that th- this is something I feel really passionately about. Um, I think designers are uniquely positioned to um, kind of, you know, as a, as a nexus between the business and the product and the users and engineering. They're kind of uniquely positioned to guide things in a way that isn't limited to just the UI itself, okay. right? They can choose to uh, they can choose to kind of shift the product direction, um, and a big part of that is um, shifting it in a more ethical ethical direction. Um, I think that I think that designers in general have quite a I think there's maybe it's something natural or inherent or like closely related to design that creates this, but designers tend to care a lot more deeply about the ethics of what they're doing. Um, than a lot of other people in tech. And I think that designers should take that really seriously and, and leverage that to the fullest extent that they can. Um, so, and I think it requires just like a, a lot of deep intellectual honesty about what it is that you are designing and what it is that you're building and what it is that you're enabling. Mm-hmm. Um, and creating a framework about how you want to assess the impact that you're having in the world um, is, is, really, is really critical. And so you went through, I think we already said, many internships and currently at Palantir. Uh, what would you recommend to students who might be in their very first startup gig or freelance gig, what they want to level up to either a big tech company or, or a very famous agency, mm-hmm. or just level up in their career overall? Yeah, I think, again, like the most important thing is constructing that feedback loop that you trust. And then once you have that, um, so like whether it's a mentor or a manager or you know, a friend whose who's feedback you trust, um, just producing tons and tons and tons of work and just running it through that feedback loop and then just getting better and better and better. Um, so that's one part of it. On the flip side, I also think, again, that people can benefit enormously by spreading their interests well outside of design. Okay. So whether that's on business or psychology or ethics or communication, um, these are all things that are actually going to help you to not just justify design's influence, but actually like grow it in, mm-hmm. in huge ways. Um, again, as the nexus between all of these different components of the business, you have to learn how to talk to people in those terms that they care about. Um, and I mean, the, the earlier you can start doing that, the better off you are. So this last segment is questions that we ask every guest, and it's essentially what's on the minds of students right now. So we pulled a bunch of Facebook groups, uh, pulled on Medium and some Twitter polls, and this is what uh, were the most chosen options. So the first question is, having the experience that you do, there are probably some things that you feel like the full-time or the current design industry doesn't quite get about the student design community. And we're wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the, I, I would actually probably reverse this and okay. say that um, the thing that designers, especially young designers, don't understand about the industry is it, it goes again back to like justifying the ROI of design. Um, I don't think you can just assume that design is worthwhile and um, you have to 
you have to learn to justify what it is that you're doing. So you're saying like a student's working on a case study or like trying to make a feature or something, like ruthlessly trying to figure out why does this matter? Right, so figuring out like, I think like figuring out um, why it matters and then also trying again like to simulate actual constraints that actually exist in the real world, um, whether it's the engineering cost or the business cost or whatever. Um, trying to understand those and internalize them as, as much as possible is gonna make the transition into the real world um, that much easier. So you have a lot to manage from, whether it's life, school, work, or previously school. Um, how do you try to stay on top of it all? I have no idea. <laughs> I, um, I've never had like a good system to do okay. it. Um, I think it's basically, if I had to sum it up, it would just be avoiding sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think prioritizing is really important, but you mm -hmm. know, there's a lot that is important to me, like between school and, and social life and obviously the design work that I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, I pretty much everything outside of that basically like cut it out, but um, even those three things were more than enough to keep yeah, me busy. Yeah, to keep you awake as well. <laughs> yeah, keep me awake. So yeah. there's a lot of um, articles, books, newsletters, and just content in the design industry? How do you filter out what's relevant to you and what's good um, content versus what is just noise? Yeah, so I actually pretty aggressively filter out most tech information and news um, and aggressively filter out most design stuff. Um, the reason for that is I think it just becomes way too easy to get kind of like into a distorted worldview about where tech and design fits in the greater, in the grander scheme of things. Um, so I, I think like casting a wider net on, uh, on where you derive inspiration, where you derive motivation mm -hmm. and information from um, is actually a good thing, right? So again, Going to the going to philosophy, going to ethics, going to communication, rhetoric. Um, so everything you read, because you're already working in this for eight hours, ten hours a day. So then the flip side, the rest of the hours that you spend, you probably want to widen your horizon. Yeah. So I, yeah, I spent a lot of time like you know behavioral economics or yeah. economics in general, um, political philosophy, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And do you have any mentors that you follow or have to stay inspired or? Uh, resources that might act as pseudo mentors. Um, I think, like within the uh, within Palantir, the kind of people who have been here doing design here for a longer time than I. Uh, so, like Mark Schaefer and Eric Grossman, Tony Poor, and then Bango, who's the head of design here at Palantir, um, are really, yeah, kind of really big uh, mentors for me. Um, but it's just a matter of like seeking out kind of that feedback loop. Um, mm -hmm. And so for everybody, it's gonna be different. I don't really f buy into the whole like idolizing designers who you don't actually no. talk to. Yeah, you see on um, Twitter. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's too easy again to like get this distorted view of, uh, of what design actually is. So as a design leader at RPI, I'm sure that there are students who came up to you asking for advice. And I'm mm -hmm. sure there's students or, you know, just people who might be 30, 40 years old who wanna switch into this career. Uh, and what immediate actionable pieces of advice would you give them to get started? I mean, practice and mm -hmm. yeah, uh, just keep doing design as much as possible. Um, figure out how you can learn to articulate yourself 
regarding design. You can't. By practice, do you mean like the tools or like the craft, or is it like go to dribble and try to make that stuff again? Because I think that's the confusion is like, the confusion is that like, do you practice what you see? Do you remix things? Yeah, so I think part of it, um, I think. I think there's no problem doing like imitative stuff, um, especially when you're first beginning. But like mostly for um, learning the tools, and there's there's of course value in like getting good at actually using Sketch, or uh, there's value in like learning how to draw or do, yeah, of course. do all of these things. Um, so in, in terms of like raw raw skills, like technical skills, definitely imitation I think is fine. Um, after that, it's a matter of how do you translate your passion for design outside of the tools because what I th a trap I think a lot of people fall into is like seeing the mock-up as the design and that's not no, really that's what true. it is. The mock-up is just the, the medium to explore yeah, the solution. Right. And and like, you know, if you're and it, and this becomes very apparent when you're working on a really small team, for example, like two person team for the past uh, several months. Um, I didn't do any mock-ups because I had nobody that I had to communicate my design vision to, right? So I was just building it. Um, and that kind of emphasizes like that the mock-up is not the design. Um, so that's that's yeah. I think that's what I mean by practice is like first get good at the get good at the technical skills that you need to have, mm -hmm. um, and then after that bias very heavily towards the towards learning the process of design and then learning how to talk about the process of design. So we talked a lot about what you've done and how you've gotten here. Uh, what's next for you? Man, uh, well, hopefully finishing my degree. <laughs> go back to RPG at some <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I keep telling myself I'll do that. Um, and then outside from that, just hopefully taking on larger and larger responsibility at, at Palantir um, for, for the foreseeable future. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us, Ethan. Thank you. Students Who Design is written and produced by Sahil Koja and Omar Abdul-Rahim. Visit our website, studentswho.design, for more information.